Welcome to the Healthy, Wealthy, and Smart Podcast. Each week, we interview the best and brightest in physical therapy, wellness, and entrepreneurship. We give you cutting-edge information you need to live your best life, healthy, wealthy, and smart. The information in this podcast is for entertainment purposes only and should not be used as personalized medical advice. And now, here's your host, Dr. Karen Litzy. Hey, everybody. Welcome back to the podcast. As always, I thank you so much for tuning in, downloading, and subscribing. It's so cool because we are now in 154 countries around the world, which is awesome. So I want to thank you to everyone around the world that's listening. And today's episode, I have a great international guest, and we are talking all about ACL rehabilitation. So file this under great ACL episodes because this one is really good, and it's a little different from the last ones uh, that I've done. So if you haven't uh, listen to the other ones. Go back and search for Bart Dinganin and go back and search for Evangelist Pappas. There are great episodes on ACL reconstruction. And today's episode is no different. And I'm so happy to have Dr. Ali Gokler. And he is a physiotherapist. He worked as a physiotherapist in the United States and Germany and then returned to the Netherlands where he obtained a degree in sports physical therapy from Utrecht University of Applied Sciences. And then in 2005, he started on his PhD project at the University Medical Consent Center, Groningen Center for Rehabilitation. Ali has special interest in motor control. He's currently working on the development of prevention programs designed to reduce primary and secondary ACL injury rate and optimization of return to sports and performance. So what do we talk about today? We talk about the four principles of motor learning, how to facilitate neuroplasticity with principles of motor learning, self-controlled feedback and how it enhances learning and motivation, and his take on the timetable for returning to sport following ACL injury. There's so much great info packed into, I think it's like 40 or 45 minutes on motor learning. I would suggest having a pen and paper ready because you're going to need to take a lot of notes. I mean, I literally took like three pages of notes for this one. So I want to thank Ollie so much for all of his knowledge and his time and sharing with all of us because it is awesome. And just as a little reminder for everyone, this is coming out on August 28th, but on August 31st at 8.30 a.m., Eastern Standard Time, I'm going to be interviewing Dr. Emma Stokes, president of the WCPT, on the Trust Me, I'm a Physiotherapist page on Facebook. So wherever you are in whatever time zone, you can kind of work that out. But definitely join us uh, Thursday morning, the 31st at 8.30 a.m. Eastern Standard Time on the Trust Me, I'm a Physiotherapist page, because I think it's going to be a great interview, and I'm really looking forward to it. And in the meantime, you can listen to this one over and over again, because I think you're going to have to. So uh, again, everyone, thanks so much for tuning in and, and enjoy today's episode. Hi, Ali. Welcome to the podcast. I'm happy to have you on today to talk all about ACLs and motor learning. So welcome. Thank you, Karen, for inviting me. It's great to be here. And so I kind of gave a little bit of your bio uh, in the intro, but can you kind of fill in a couple of blanks for us and maybe where you are now in your career and what led you up to the point you're at now? Okay. 
Uh, let's go back to the beginning. I got my PT degree in uh, 1991 in the Netherlands, and pretty soon afterwards, I left uh, to the United States, and I worked there for five years. And uh, after I arrived there, I started working uh, pretty much right away with orthopedic surgeons, and uh, primarily focusing on uh, on shoulder and knee injuries. So I went into the OR with them. I did rounds uh, with the surgeons. So that's basically where my interest in, uh, and I want to focus it now on the uh, on the knee, uh, where it started. Um, then after five years, uh, I moved uh, back to Europe and started working in uh, in Germany. And uh, at the facility I worked, there was also a research lab from a prosthetic uh, manufacturer, and the biomechanist there. You know, he was a little bit bored with uh, just uh, measuring patients with uh, prosthetics, and uh, he also wanted to do something more with uh, with the knee uh, patients, and uh, we were seeing a lot of them. And uh, uh, basically, that's where my uh, research career started as as a hobby, uh, which got a little bit out of control, obviously. But uh, basically, uh, back in Germany, uh, we started doing the first uh, gait analysis research. I think it was back in 2000, 2001 or so, um, and that's where uh, my interest in uh, research uh, started. Then when I got back to the Netherlands after working for five years in uh, in Germany, I was so psyched about doing research that I uh, applied for uh, for a PhD position, which, uh, which I did part-time. Uh, there was uh, no funding uh, to do it full-time. Um, so uh, I did it on the side of uh, working as a as a PT and an owner of a of a well, growing a PT clinic, and uh, that's why it also took me a little bit longer than the standard four years. It took me ten years, but uh, uh, you know I had to do it next to a full time job uh, running a PT clinic with uh, 44 people, and uh, I finalized my PhD in uh, 2015 on uh, motor control uh, after ACL uh, injuries. So, and, and that's where my interest is still at. Yeah, and I think you know earlier uh, this year I had Bart Dinigan on, who I know that you know, and mm-hmm. he sort of has one foot in both camps. So he's a clinician and he's also a researcher. And right. so I know that you're you have something similar. So can you kind of talk about that for a little bit? Yeah, uh, like I said, I've uh, I've been running a PT clinic with uh, 27 PTs and, uh, and a lot of uh, administrative staff. So we had a total of 44 people, um, and uh, yeah, but it was basically a, a full time job. And uh, uh, when I uh, when I finished that, I, uh, I did my research usually uh, late at night or early in the morning, and doing so for like many years got to a point where I felt, uh, you know, where I really need to uh, focus my energy to where my where my where my heart goes in, out to. And uh, over Christmas, I then decided, okay, uh, I, I I can't keep going like this, so I need to give it a, a, a career change. Um, so uh, I decided to uh, share to to sell the share of my PT clinic and uh, devote my time to uh, to research and teaching. Uh, unfortunately, there is no uh, funding uh, right now, so I'm uh, busy trying to find uh, funding through uh, through grants. Um, once I finalize that, then I will go back uh, also in uh, working in the PT clinic, but in uh, in uh, in different perspective than I did before, so that I uh, still have uh, 
uh, t- t- touch with the clinical field, but not uh, like uh, working uh, 120 hours a week, but uh, in a little bit healthy balance. Or, uh, but I, I still want to work uh, in the in the in the clinical field um, in order to uh, to stay in touch with uh, what's what's clinically important and not becoming a, a researcher that's. Uh, you know, generating scientific output from a, behind a desk or from a lab that the clinicians are not waiting for. Yeah. So I want to really yeah. stay in touch with the clinic. Yeah, and I think that makes yeah. a lot of sense. And I feel like Bart sort of had similar uh, reasons for having one foot in both camps. Now, right, right. your PhD in motor learning and ACLs. So let's get into that. Before we mm-hmm. even get into a lot of the research, can you define what motor learning is and why is it important for patients after ACL surgery? Okay, okay. Yeah, this, this is also the, the first slide that I use when I'm teaching courses on motor learning because uh, it is really important to understand what we're talking about. Uh, otherwise, you know, the whole concept is, is not making any sense. Well, basically, for motor learning, uh, there are four criteria, and I would refer to people who are interested into the book by Richard Smith. It's 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 a must read for anybody who's interested in motor learning. Uh, the first criterion is that it's a process related to the effects of practice, obviously, because you know we have our patients practice, so. Um, the effects of that are, are really important. Um, those produce an acquired ability for movement, and I'm emphasizing acquired, which means that the the, the skill is there. Whether it shows is a different story. It might de- depend on uh, motivation of a patient. It might depend on certain uh, circumstances. So it's an acquired ability. The third is, and this is also very important, it's not clinically observable. Um, so we can only see the outcome, and um, uh, like when you uh, when you observe a patient uh, during uh, during uh, an exercise, um, is uh, is an, uh, a measure of performance, and the measure of performance is a very unreliable index, is whether uh, this results in uh, relatively long term changes, and that's that's the fourth criterion. Uh, motor learning uh, must lead to relatively uh, permanent changes. Otherwise, we're only talking or observing performance, but learning means that uh, the changes have occurred over uh, over time. How can you determine uh, between, uh, or discern between uh, learning versus uh, performance uh, uh, improvements? That's why researchers uh, conduct uh, retention tests. And uh, a retention test is uh, uh, a test that you perform after a certain time interval. So let's say the patient has practiced uh, for, for six weeks doing, uh, doing a, a drop vertical jump. And what you then do is you uh, test at baseline and you score, for instance, the drop vertical jump with a landing error scoring test. Then the patient is uh, going through a uh, six-week training program. And after this training program, you allow for a certain time interval, which could be several days, but preferably it is weeks or even longer. And the purpose of this time interval is um, that you allow dissipation of any temporary uh, performance uh, effects. So you have the patient and come back, let's say, after months. He hasn't practiced in, in that particular month. And then you have him do the drop foot like a jump again. You don't give any instructions. 
you just have them do the uh, the, uh, the drop vertical jump. You score that, and you compare that to uh, to the tested baseline, so that you know that you only have uh, the relatively uh, permanent uh, effects uh, uh, inside. So that is really important uh, to consider when we talk about motor learning. And is that kind of like you know when people say, oh, it's just like riding a bike. So if you learn to ride a bike and you practiced it, so the the you know, you <laughs> practice it through the process, you acquired the ability, and you've then created a permanent change through this motor learning that even if you haven't ridden a bike in 10 years, you can still get on and ride a bike. Yeah, definitely. That's a really important uh, point that you uh, touch here because uh, I think we all know um, or uh, we, the, 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 the Fitz and Postner uh, motor learning uh, stages uh, where uh, and that's an old theory back in the 60s and uh, the the first stage is defined as uh, having the patient or or an athlete going through uh, explicit verbal cognitive instructions you do a step-by-step uh, approach and in this phase the movements are very slow inconsistent inefficient so it's basically like an ori- orientation phase when then when you go into the associative uh, stage, then some parts of the movement are controlled uh, consciously, some are getting more automatically. Movements become more fluent, uh, more efficient, and less cognitive activity is uh, required. And then in the final stage, and this, this can take months or years, the movement is largely controlled automatically, and movements are accurate, consistent, and efficient, and little or no cognitive activity is required. Now, coming back to what you said, this is really interesting. If you ask someone, how do you ride a bike? People really have no clue how to describe that. We just ride our bike. Mm-hmm. When I ask you, how did you get to work today driving your car? Uh, what do you mean? Well, I just got in my car and drove to work. So uh, what I'm trying to say is that this this um, this theory that Fitz and Postner proposed in the, in the late 60s and a lot of people still hold on to has not been uncontested. Um, because we uh, get more and more uh, information and evidence that a lot of skills that we learn, we learn implicitly and not explicitly. So when we ask someone, how did you do that? Uh, I was just watching, for example, the uh, uh, World Championships uh, Athletics, Mm -hmm. and after the the, the final uh, hurdles, they interviewed one of the Dutch athletes and she really didn't really know uh, how, how, how she performed in, in terms of how she got over these hurdles. She just remembered that her start was not that good. Uh, but uh, by trying to recollect uh, how her hips went over the hurdle, um, that was something that, that she couldn't uh, get, 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 a, get a good grip on. So that's uh, something that uh, we should also consider as as therapists because intuitively um, we might think that a patient um, is benefiting from uh, uh, explicit knowledge how to uh, how to move and uh, like i said this uh, this theory has been uh, challenged uh, for quite a few years Um, uh, but what we see in the in the clinical field is that uh, around 95 percent of the physical therapists still provide instructions um, that are directed towards uh, our, the, our movements. So um, in other words, 
they induce a certain internal focus. So with an mm -hmm. internal focus means that your attention is directed towards uh, your uh, your movements uh, in self. Yeah. Yeah, and I think I, that's that. I never really thought about it that way, but yeah, I don't know how I ride a bike. I just do it. Right. Right. Yeah. It's like I'm not the, thinking. Okay, get on the bike, balance, bend my left hip, extend my <sighs> right knee. Bend, you know what I mean? You just yeah. kind of get on and and you go. And yeah. is that not kind of what you want your athletes to do or your your patients to do? Let's say after they have ACL surgery, do you don't you want them to kind of get back into their sport or return to play without having to think about all of these internal cueings? Right, right. And and this would fall under the category uh, of uh, of implicit learning, which could also uh, induce a so-called external focus effect. Um, and w what you try to do is uh, to uh, to reduce the amount of uh, of explicit explicit knowledge about uh, movement execution during uh, learning. And uh, like one of the most interesting and uh, unexplored aspects of uh, of implicit learning in rehab is its connection with uh, performance like uh, in situations where anticipation and decision-making is at stake. And this uh, may be, uh, for example, uh, very important in the late stages of rehab when the patient is uh, approaching the return of sports phase. And why am I saying that? Well, uh, Richard Masters, he uh, proposed the, the reinvestment uh, uh, problem. And what does that mean? Uh, reinvestment is um, when an athlete or a patient um, begins to direct attention to skills and movements which should have already been uh, automatically, which uh, do not require any, any conscious uh, control. And reinvestment uh, may occur uh, during uh, situations of stress, physical or psychological uh, stress. Now, if you uh, imagine that uh, most uh, patients uh, during rehab get explicit learning instructions, then uh, under the situations of, uh, of stress uh, can cause uh, or promote reinvestment because the athlete, athlete reverts back to uh, what he has learned, which was a detailed step-by-step -step instruction about movement execution, and that is often in the form of, uh, of verbal guidance. Um, and under stress, uh, the patient or an athlete may unwillingly start to follow this, this guidance and uh, instead of uh, making smooth and fluid execution, uh, it, it becomes uh, yeah, somewhat <laughs> like, like, like moving like a novice. Mm -hmm. um, and uh, unfortunately, what it also does, because the patient is now reverting back to a conscious control of movement, which we normally don't have or don't want, uh, the excessive attention uh, uh, draws back from other memory resources, which could be like, uh, where are the opponents uh, uh, approaching me? Uh, where, is this, where is the ball uh, located uh, on the field? Uh, where are my other teammates? So um, um, this may have uh, strong effects on, uh, on how patients uh, perform. And I think that's also one of the aspects that we uh, should consider in light of the relatively uh, high rate of, uh, of uh, second ACL injury. Um, um, and that is also one of the, my key messages uh, I, would, I would give in this podcast. 
Um, are we training patients uh, well enough related to the uh, psychological and physical demands they face when they're when they're back on the pitch? Um, and and typically, if you've uh, not addressed that, and if you've given uh, majority of your instructions with uh, with an internal focus, or if you induced uh, explicit learning. Um, you uh, need to realize that uh, during the situations of uh, of stress, uh, the patient may uh, may fall back in this uh, reinvestment, which uh, may pose him or her uh, for higher risk. So that's definitely an area I think that we need to explore more on. And how does all of this then, so we know how some of this fits with uh, ACL surgery. You just mentioned uh, uh, re-injury rates. Um, But could you explain a little bit more, maybe what the current research is telling us for these, and we'll stick with with ACL uh, surgical patients since that is the focus of your rehab. But what is the Mm -hmm. research telling us when it comes to rehab of these patients and when does motor learning start? When do you start putting that into your rehab program and does it stop? Uh huh. Okay. Um, I think there are two, uh, no, three important points. Uh, if you look at the work of uh, Claire Dern and her uh, intensive uh, meta-analysis, you'll see that patients after an ACL reconstruction, uh, on average, uh, 81% return to sport, uh, 65% return to the pre-injury level, uh, and only 55 return to a competitive level of sports. So, although surgical techniques have uh, improved, it, it seems that our rehab is not effective enough in getting these patients back where, they, where we uh, expect them to be. Uh, secondly, what we also see, and uh, the evidence is emerging on that, is that the asymmetries that we see during daily activities like uh, walking, uh, going up and down stairs, uh, and also during uh, athletic tasks uh, are consistently and sometimes even persistent after ACL injury or after ACL reconstruction. Uh, for example, we did a, 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 a systematic review just looking at uh, gait, and it showed that uh, people uh, may have aberrant gait patterns for up to five years. And the question is, do uh, some of them even uh, return to a normal gait pattern? Now, why is that important? Well, twofold. Uh, we, we know uh, in work from uh, Tim Hughes' group and Mark Paterno showed that that altered loading of the knee joint may uh, increase the athlete for uh, uh, ipsy or contralateral uh, second injury. Uh, secondly, the uh, aberrant uh, movement patterns, and for and for example, uh, like I showed, uh, mentioned before, the, the gait patterns may be related to the early onset of uh, osteoarthritis. Uh, of course, I want to reiterate that these are all multifactorial problems. However, uh, from a movement standpoint uh, and the aberrant movement patterns that we see, might be a very important factor in why these uh, problems uh, persist. Now, um, if you uh, look at the clinical situation uh, after an ACL uh, injury or an ACL reconstruction, um, it may be very useful for patients to use a motor control program in the beginning 
that is uh, focused to protect the knee, uh, like uh, they're taking small steps, uh, you reduce the range of motion of the knee, uh, you don't put full weight on the leg, and you kind of uh, look around you uh, where you place your foot. You, know, you don't want to be uh, uh, stepping in a busy subway because uh, you don't want to get re-injured again. So this this all makes sense, uh, especially in light of uh, the presence of pain or, or swelling. Um, so you can consider that as a very uh, useful strategy. However, uh, and this is where the problem lies, uh, you would expect uh, during the course of rehab that these uh, uh, movements uh, restore back to, uh, to pre-injury levels. And that is clearly not the case for all uh, patients. Now, um, I think in the, in the clinical field, um, there's a... There's, uh, room for improvement how we view an ACL injury and uh, on one side of the spectrum uh, is, is a more traditional more biomechanical directed approach that targets muscle strength works on balance uh, endurance and also um, targets uh, some neuromuscular deficits and although I acknowledge to uh, the importance to address these more biomechanical factors I think there is a need for uh, improvement of uh, ACL rehab programs in light of the uh, the, the problems that I uh, mentioned before, uh, given the uh, altered movement patterns uh, and the high incidence of uh, second uh, ACL injury in uh, young athletes and or the early onset of, uh, of osteoarthritis. And uh, in, in, in that view, I think we should contend that an, uh, an ACL injury um, it's also uh, regarded as a neurophysiological uh, lesion and not just a biomechanical lesion. Yeah, you know? no, 100%. 100%, yeah, for sure. Yeah. And then where, so where do you feel that ACL rehab, let's say, protocols um, are maybe not as good as they should be? Um, I, and that's probably a hard question to ask because I'm sure a lot more research needs to go into that. <laughs> yeah. Um, l l let me go back maybe to, to a study that we did. Is um, We had patients, uh, uh, we invited patients in a virtual reality uh, lab and we had them do just a simple step-down task. And we had them do that in, uh, in two different conditions. In condition one, they just looked at a traffic light that was depicted on a screen and once the light uh, was shown green, there was the instruction, okay, you can step down now. And then in the second condition, uh, we created a virtual reality environment. And what it showed is that patients after ACL reconstruction uh, then uh, showed a more normalized uh, movement pattern, pretty close to uh, the control group that we, uh, that we also examined. So this is my point. Um, it seems like... Uh, a certain percentage of patients hold on to a conscience control of movement. If you go through a rehab program that focuses on internal focus instructions or explicit learning, you may uh, not sufficiently challenge the neuroplasticity that this patient would need. Uh, neuroplasticity is, is important to allow patients uh, to resume high athletic uh, activity without instability of the knee. And also, uh, we need to 
provide the patient with all the various components that we have in, uh, available to uh, to enhance the neuroplasticity. And Dustin Grooms, as a, as a great colleague, uh, he and I we we, we talk uh, quite a bit and uh, discuss all, all the all these problems that we talk about. He uh, he p- proposed that rehabilitation after ACL injury. Uh, should include uh, visual input modifications to decrease their dependency on, on visual information and in turn uh, uh, facilitate the neuroplasticity process. And uh, I, I agree with that. However, I think there's also another possibility. And I think that uh, we currently use not 100% effective motor learning strategies. And these are uh, not uh, sufficient to uh, stimulate the neuroplasticity. Um, and I think that uh, could help explain in part why not all patients regain uh, pre-injury motor skills uh, because the neuroplastic uh, capacities are not optimally changed uh, in, in the current rehab programs. Um, and, um, and I also think that... Um, it's not only uh, of of the patient returning back to the same level, but more importantly, also uh, in light of the uh, re- reduction of uh, second ACL injury, and uh, maybe even more importantly, uh, the reduction of the osteoarthritis in these uh, very young athletes. And so, so I think. Oh yeah, go ahead. Uh, uh, well, you you can skip that. Okay. It's fine. Okay. Yeah, yeah. So. Uh, I guess my next question is, what are some principles of motor learning that we as therapists can use uh, with our rehab programs? Okay. Um, Like I I said, um, around 95% of the therapists uh, provide instructions with with an internal focus. So... uh, uh, a therapist may instruct a patient who has an altered uh, gait pattern, uh, straighten your knee more during the stance phase or keep your knee above your toes during uh, during a squat. And uh, intuitively, this might make sense. However, uh, there is a growing body of evidence showing that this type of attentional focus may not be as effective as we uh, as we previously thought. And interestingly, a very simple change in the wording can have a significant effect on, the, on, on, on learning. And by doing so, is directing uh, the patient's attention to the uh, effects or the outcome of movements rather than uh, uh, drawing uh, the attention on the movements themselves. So that's when we speak about a so-called external focus. And um, that uh, results in uh, utilization of more automatic or unconscious uh, motor control processes um, uh, which uh, could speed up uh, uh, the learning process. And um, can, can you give an example of maybe what's the, I think we kind of all got what's the wrong way to cue someone, <laughs> um, but can, yeah. you, can you give an example of, so let's say you have someone working into a squat instead of saying, you know, keep your knees at this angle or push your hips into this uh, position. Can you give right. an example of maybe uh, a way that we can word it in order to encourage motor learning and some neuroplasticity within, 
within our patients. Right. Well, I, I just want to emphasize, I, I don't want to uh, get people's impression that uh, an internal focus is, uh, is wrong or is not good. I think uh, that what, I, what my point would be is um, to uh, challenge people or to invite people to use also more uh, external focus instruction. And there's a large body of evidence that supports that. Um, and not saying that an internal focus is not good uh, because I don't want to be in, uh, an adversary of uh, what people currently do. Right. Uh, but I think, like I said, uh, there, there is room for improvement and that, that would be just uh, the, the, the message I try to get across is uh, inviting people to try this and uh, see how it works uh, for them. Um, and then coming back to your question, like if you would have a patient who has a problem performing a squat by showing a hip adduction or, or, or knee valgus, what I, uh, for example, then do is place two cones in front of the knee and all I, and I, I have to play around with that a little bit and I place the cones at a certain position that I know if the patient now squats, uh, the knees are lined up perfectly with the feet the instruction I'm giving the patient is, okay, I would like you to squat down again, and I would like you to touch the cone with your knee. So I'm not saying anything about valgus. I'm not saying anything about keep the, the knee over the foot. I'm just directing the attention towards the desired goal, which in this case is try to touch the cone uh, with your knee. Yeah. And Very simple. Very simple, very easy, yeah. uh, very easy instructions. And, and I mm -hmm. am glad that you said, you know, we don't want everything to be on the external focus because you don't want the pendulum to swing wide in either direction. Exactly. exactly. You know, you want to be able to, and I think it, does it also depend on the learning style of your patient? Yeah, I think uh, what we need to realize, there is no um, motor learning principle uh, that, that is the golden standard. It, it re and it's a good thing that you point out. It, it really depends on the, on the learning style of the patient. Uh, it also depends on the, on the context that you're, uh, that you're working on. It depends on the uh, an, an environment that you're working on. Uh, so there are uh, very various uh, principles that you could use. Um, Although uh, uh, in, 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 in motor learning, uh, it seems uh, though that uh, the evidence uh, does swing a little bit more towards uh, the effects of, uh, of an external focus versus uh, an internal focus. Uh, but I don't want to be uh, an advocate of uh, just uh, 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 forgetting about all the good things that we used in the past and uh, just do something radically different. Now, my point would be used uh, from the past what's good and try to use uh, some, some new concepts in order to enhance the outcomes of our, uh, of our rehab and uh, prevention. Yeah, and that sounds incredibly fair to me. So mm -hmm. we've got a, the principle of external uh, cueing for our patients. What other motor learning principles uh, can you give us that we can kind of fit into our rehab programs? Yeah, we touched a little bit back on uh, on implicit learning uh, already. Um, and uh, one way uh, to induce uh, uh, implicit learning is um, using uh, analogies. So uh, in, in that respect, you could uh, tell a patient, uh, let's stay with the example of a squat, uh, like uh, try to imagine uh, you're sitting down on a chair. So you're not saying anything uh, that is directed towards uh, movements. 
but you uh, refer to a visual picture that, that the patient already has in his or her mind um, and, and, uh, and, 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 and give an instruction like that or uh, you could uh, uh, say something like, uh, when you jump down from a drop vertical jump, try to land as softly as you can. Or imagine you're landing on uh, uh, on uh, on eggs and you don't want to crack the eggs. Uh, or uh, what I sometimes did is um, I put a, a bottle of water on top of a, a box and just on the edge. And if a patient would jump down too hard, the bottle would fall off. And all I would say uh, jump on the box and try to keep the bottle on the box. Nice, nice. I like yeah, that. So, I like yeah, that a yeah. lot. Okay. Yeah. Uh, external cues, implicit learning. What other, do we have any other uh, principles from motor learning that you feel we should be incorporating? Yeah, I think uh, there's, there are two that I would like to uh, uh, mention. Uh, one is uh, observation. Um, and w what we uh, developed in Groningen, Professor Otten did that. He uh, developed uh, the so-called Vismo software, visual motor learning. And uh, it's, a, it's a video feedback uh, system in which you are depicted as a, as a silhouette. And uh, we did an overlay technique in which we had a, a healthy athlete who uh, depicted a, a desired uh, movement pattern. So we have different views from the front or from the side. Um, for example, we used one for uh, for gait training, and you you could show uh, the video of the of the of the patient uh, connected in to the frame of the of the overlay techniques. And all you would have to say is to try to create as much overlap with the other silhouette. So you're not saying anything about uh, trying to extend your knee or trying to uh, 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 rock the foot in a certain way. All you do is uh, try to um, mimic the, the, the desired uh, movement pattern that you've uh, seen from the other. Um, and you could also use this, and we did that in the ACL prevention research, that uh, uh, during plant and cut tasks that you uh, were uh, your, your movements were recorded and you give uh, an athlete a certain control over when he or she wants to receive uh, feedback. And interestingly, uh, that maybe that's an interesting question for you. When do you think that most athletes uh, request feedback, after a good trial or after a bad trial? Um, I would think after a good trial. Right, spot on, spot on, yeah. And that, that's what we found. The majority of our athletes, uh, they didn't want feedback uh, when they already knew that it wasn't uh, a good trial. So the only, they requested uh, almost always uh, feedback uh, when they did something uh, correct in, in a good sense, which is also uh, something that we could use. And that's uh, another aspect in uh, motor learning, which is self-controlled learning. And uh, when, I'm, when I'm teaching this, I, I, I get a lot of, colleagues uh, looking at me what do you mean by that Ali and um, it's not something of course that I uh, developed but uh, that's something that has been around in motor learning and I'm trying to uh, use that now in uh, rehab because uh, consider the following in uh, in in most PT clinics uh, the, 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 the clinician determines uh, the details of the training like uh, which exercise, in which order the, the exercises are practiced, uh, how many reps, how many weights, uh, the, the, the PT determines when the patient gets uh, instructions or, uh, or, or is getting feedback. So 
basically a clinician is pretty much in charge of uh, what's going on and uh, the, the patient assumes a relatively passive role. Uh, and uh, in, in, in motor learning, we know that self-controlled learning is a very, very powerful tool. Um, so to give you an, uh, an example how I use that, I uh, uh, made a, uh, a poster and it depicts uh, nine uh, various exercises. For example, uh, uh, nine uh, balance exercises. And what I'm uh, inviting my patient is, uh, all right, he or she has practiced, of course, any of these exercises already. Uh, and I uh, tell them, okay, if you come in next time, you can choose your own three exercises that you want in any order for any length that you want for any given session. And I'm right there. So uh, I'm standing around if they want my feedback or uh, if they want my help. But other than that, I pretty much let them uh, determine when they feel, um, okay, I've practiced this one enough and I want to move on to the next exercise. And obviously, you know, I'm still around to determine whether that's appropriate or not. But the, the, the key point here is that you give the patient a certain amount of control and autonomy and uh, active activation uh, during, a, during a rehab uh, program, which is something that usually is not done. And I think this is very important for the motivation and, um, uh, and an active participation in the, in, in the rehab process that really could help us to enhance uh, motor learning. And I think that's important because, you know, like what I usually say is I might be with my patients for three hours a week, but they're with themselves the rest of the time. Mm -hmm. So if they don't feel confident to say, you know, like you just said, I'm going to pick a couple of exercises and I know how to do this until the point I need to move on to the next exercise is no. really important because it's going to encourage that patient to do things on their own because we all know what happens exactly. if they don't ever do their homework if they don't if the patient does nothing of what you're asking them to do on their own right it's, talk about not having motor learning i mean you're not going to progress very all that well mm -hmm. exactly exactly yeah yeah so this is a very powerful tool and uh, of course you know uh, i want to reiterate that as a PT, we always reassure that safety is, of course, uh, warranted. But um, uh, just trying to give the patient uh, uh, some some freedom in uh, determining uh, the order of exercises, the, the, the type of exercises, whether uh, he or she uh, wants feedback, like, like we um, discussed previously, uh, like uh, in, in, in a typical situation the, when the patient is performing an exercise, uh, a PT may give uh, uh, remarks, and these are usually corrective remarks. Uh, and like we found already in our studies, uh, when, when a healthy athlete knows he or she is not doing an exercise incorrectly, they already know, and we, we don't need to reinforce that. Mm -hmm. What works better is to give positive reinforcement when the exercise has been, been performed uh, correctly and giving the patient some uh, opportunity to, uh, to determine when he or she wants to re receive that feedback instead of us just standing on the line and constantly giving uh, our verbal remarks. Now just let the patient you know, explore and, 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 and uh, determine when, uh, when he or she feels uh, the exercise is going well. Yeah, and that makes a lot of sense because, again, if they're 
with themselves and as the therapist, you know, maybe you're not there, they're doing things at home, they should have that feeling of, hmm, this just didn't feel right. And I think I know why. Right, exactly. Because you're exactly. not you're yeah. not attached to the hip to your patients. At least I hope you're not. Uh, <laughs> no. <laughs> talk about talk about PT burnout, right? Um, <laughs> so uh, let's talk about one more thing, and I'd love to get your thoughts on early return to sport after ACL surgery. So, you know, you see, yeah. like I've seen things on social media where a therapist is bragging he got his gal back to sport after four or five months. Mm-hmm, mm-hmm. Yeah. So what are your thoughts on that? Uh, and and well, I should say, what are your thoughts on it, or what does the research tell us? Okay, I think there are, th- this is a very complex issue, and I think there are various uh, factors that we need to uh, consider. Uh, one is, um, instead of uh, going to the end point, let's start at the beginning, and that is to identify deficits prior to the ACL reconstruction. So w- was this an at-risk patient? then these uh, deficits should be addressed prior to rehab. And uh, there, there are a number of studies, uh, and one was recently done from uh, uh, Oslo and Delaware, that uh, prehabilitation uh, results in better outcomes up to uh, two years uh, after reconstruction. So the, uh, uh, the rehab prior to the surgery seems to be an important uh, factor. The second point is uh, uh, I think we need to consider whether uh, we want to use exclusively internal focus uh, instructions or that we allow also other principles for motor learning that we've uh, discussed uh, uh, previously. Um, But what about the training intensity? And we found, for example, that the training intensity in some of our soccer players that we uh, rehabbed was too low. And after we put them on a, on a different uh, training regimen, after Biodex test, we found that the, train, that the strength increments were much better than we used uh, before. So I think there might even be uh, a problem of underloading uh, in, uh, in, in, a, in a physiological uh, training uh, parameters uh, in our, our patients. And I'm, I'm sure uh, Tim Gavitt can uh, tell a lot more about that. Another thing is uh, the specificity of the training. Uh, is the athlete well enough prepared uh, to go back on the pitch in a totally div- uh, different environment than what that is being used in the, in, in the PT clinic? Like uh, single leg hops, they're a great test, but I don't think these are the tests that we should exclusively do to allow a patient to go back to full competition. We need to consider... Uh, uh, sensor technology to determine uh, how uh, the, the knee and other segments in the kinetic chain is moving during complex uh, tasks uh, on the field and not just on the, on, the, on the clinic. And in that sense, I think uh, the, the return to sports tests that we use right now are maybe uh, too, uh, too generic and uh, they should include more uh, exercise physiological parameters, parameters, as well as, uh, as physiological and physical demands that uh, the patient uh, faces while uh, while on the pitch, and like, uh, and I'm sure Bart also discussed it before. Uh, we need to really consider the task and environment interactions, uh, like. Uh, a one-on-one rehab uh, is uh, is very nice uh, for uh, for a basketball player or or a soccer player, 
but that's not what he or she is facing uh, back on the field. So we need to add that to our rehab to determine uh, how uh, how a patient is uh, is coping with that. So and then um, I think we also need to stratify it to the population. Uh, I mean, uh, uh, if 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 it is a forty uh, five year old uh, uh, male who is playing uh, uh, re- recreational tennis. Uh, maybe it is okay to go back to sports after uh, six months. But I think what we're talking about is the the group of uh, uh, young competitive athletes, typically mm-hmm. younger than 20, and um, that's where we can expect uh, one in four, one in third uh, uh, second ACL injury. And that's, that's of course, uh, a great concern. Uh, on the other hand, uh, is the glass half full or half em- empty? <laughs> uh, you know, uh, because uh, 75% may do well. Mm-hmm. Uh, however, I think uh, the the high injury rates for sure are are unacceptable, and and uh, the, the, that seems to be growing. So uh, for sure, uh, time after ACL reconstruction needs to go uh, for, for for at least uh, uh, more than nine months and. Uh, uh, like uh, from Tim Hewitt's group, uh, it's been even uh, suggested to wait uh, two, two, uh, two years. Two years, yeah, yeah. Although uh, I, I agree uh, in part with that, uh, given the, the, bio, the, the time uh, that the biology needs. However, I think uh, what, we, what we can focus on is uh, trying to uh, come up with uh, better rehabilitation approaches that we can uh, target these uh, aberrant uh, movement patterns better. And maybe uh, in that sense, we, uh, we wouldn't have to wait uh, two years because I think that it's going to be uh, extremely challenging to uh, tell our patients that, uh, that they would have to wait two years. Uh, I don't think uh, we can sell that to anyone, although it may be medically uh, uh, sound to give that advice right now. Uh, I, I don't think uh, a lot of uh, patients are going to buy that. And then what what you uh, would get is uh, going back to the period of Shelbourne that people uh, uh, were not listening to his advice and do what they want to do. Uh, so uh, I think we uh, we need to step up and uh, come up with uh, better rehab approaches. Yeah, and I think that's that makes a lot of sense. And I think it's also a great way to kind of end our talk. Um, but before we end, I always ask everyone, well, actually, let's do this. I'm going to ask two questions. So one is, if you were to, what would you like the audience to leave with from this discussion? What are your key points? Um, My key points is, um, I have five written down. Uh, I I would... uh, Invite people to use um, uh, external focus instructions, try implicit learning, try uh, to use uh, observation techniques using video. Uh, secondly, I uh, would uh, give the patient some form of, uh, of self-control over the, over the rehabilitation program. Thirdly, and this is something that I didn't mention before, but um, to use desired difficulties what I mean by that, and it's uh, to give rehab, make rehab uh, challenging, fun, but attainable. So uh, not too difficult, but make make it make it uh, make it challenging for patients. Um, don't let them do the the standard routine. Certainly not after uh, an ACL reconstruction, because the, the rehab uh, is is taking so long. And I think it is uh, one of the reasons why people uh, may. Uh, 
you know, lose their motivation after four to five months by, by doing the same thing over and over again. Create more, uh, create more variety. Uh, my fourth point w- would be uh, be aware of the effects of uh, how you word your instructions and uh, and feedback. Uh, like a, a lot of corrective uh, feedback, uh, for example, after a patient is not doing what you expect them to do, you know, is really not enhancing their motivation and uh, self-efficacy. So uh, combining that with the self-control, uh, let them uh, determine when they want to receive in, uh, feedback. And typically what they would do is uh, request feedback when things go well. Um, and my fifth point would be is that uh, the exercises should be functional, but uh, that should be uh, managing uh, their their desired goals, and it should be uh, practiced in the in the in the in this context. Those are my five key points, and I think that would be uh, very beneficial to uh, improve our outcome. Yeah, and I think they're all wonderful points. Okay, so now on to the last question. And it's one that I ask all of my guests. And that is, knowing where you are now in your career and in your life, what advice would you give yourself as a new physio grad? Yeah, I I had to receive this question also by a course participant. Um, I think it depends a little bit on what what your uh, ultimate goal is. Basically, I would say... Try not to go into academics uh, too soon. Try to uh, uh, stay uh, on, 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 a, on a broad foundation. Learn different things. Try to work for uh, for various years. And then if you know what you want, you can uh, go into uh, clinical specialization uh, and or if you want to uh, pursue an academic career. But I think only a very few uh, know right away what they want and then it's okay. But if you don't know that, give yourself some time and get your feet wet and uh, try to uh, acquire as much as, uh, experience as you can. And then time uh, will tell you in which direction uh, you will uh, go for the rest of your career. Yeah, fabulous advice. And now, where can people find you? So if someone has questions, I know you're on Twitter. Um, and again, we'll have links to all of your info and everything that you shared at the show notes at podcast.healthywealthysmart.com under this episode. But where can people find you if they want to find you? Uh, they can find me on uh, on Facebook under my uh, name, Ali Gokler. Um, that's where uh, I regularly post uh, information. I have uh, my own website, aclrehabilitation.com, where I uh, have outlined uh, the various uh, conferences uh, I'm speaking at or uh, courses that I'm teaching. You mentioned already uh, Twitter. Uh, yeah, and uh, for uh, for the last, uh, they can uh, try to read my uh, the articles that are, mm-hmm. are coming uh, out on a regular basis, uh, working with uh, various people and not only from uh, Groningen in the Netherlands, but also from Germany, uh, Bart Dingenen from Belgium, and uh, American uh, colleagues. Yeah. Awesome. All right. Well, I thank you so much. I took an amazing amount of notes. You have no idea. I have like four pages of notes here. So I thank you so much for sharing so much with me and with the audience. So thanks for coming on. Thank you very much for having me, Karen. Bye-bye. Yeah. And everyone else, thanks so much for tuning in and listening. Have a great week and stay healthy, wealthy, and smart. Thank you for listening and please subscribe to the podcast at podcast.healthywealthysmart.com. And don't forget to follow us on social media.